yourselves to second. Um, I want to thank all of you here today by helping to ensure that Central doesn't forget its past, continues to live successfully in its present, and is planning for its future. The foundation, along with the Alumni Association, is committed to making certain that another 160 years of tradition of excellence continues. As some of you know, um, our boys' basketball team will be headed to state on Thursday, and we have our varsity boys' basketball team, as well as some team members uh, here with us today to share a few words. So, Eric, will you come on up?
Johnson truly did cut his comedy writing teeth at Central. In addition to this uh, sophomore underground newspaper that landed him in hot water, he wrote a humor column as editor of the Register and performed comedy skits in the Roadshow. At Yale, Johnson majored in English, performed in music and theater, and wrote humor pieces on the side. Soon after college, he landed a job as writer and editor at National Lampoon Magazine. From there, he wrote for animated Beavis and Butthead, also writing two books featuring the dim-witted duo in the pilot episode of his spinoff series, Daria. Over the past two decades, he shared writing and production credits on numerous situation comedies, among them News Radio, How I Met Your Mother, Hot in Cleveland, and the long-running Frasier, in the latter sharing in multiple Emmy nominations. Johnson continues to write in California, where he makes his home. At this time, I'd like to bring up Dr. Keith Bigsby to start the program, and Sam Johnson. the microphone, but we're aware of it, okay? Coronavirus, we just want to be aware of it. A couple things before I get Sam up here. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever seen this book, but it is by an eagle, a guy by the name of Orville Menard, who was a professor at UNO, and uh, Dr. Menard also wrote a monument to Stone, which is a history of Omaha Sentinel. Now, Darlene came up to me today, his lovely bride, who we met in the central book room, and said, I want to show you something. And I was kind of amazed, so I said, I want to share this, if you're okay with it. This book is The Army of the Fifth Republic by Orville Menard. This picture, which you cannot see, but I hope you'll come up and take a look at this, is from The Crown, season three, Episode 5, and on the desk is a copy. On Mount Batman's desk. So, you know, as I told Dr. Bennett, eagles just happen to be everywhere and impacting everywhere. So, you know, Dolores, thank you so much for sharing this. Greatly appreciate it. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you the eagles. Also, I want to make sure I thank our Alumni Association and Mr. Cordes. He did an outstanding job of putting together an alumni roadshow. So Henry, you want to stand up. And those people who are also part of your committee, they're very well. I think, what, what was the number, Henry, 99? 102. 102 who came for an alumni version of the roadshow. So outstanding. So where are you at, Sam? Come on. You're coming up, my friend. All right. Good. Up to the top. To the top. Now, I want you guys all to know, like everything, we spent about two and a half hours on the phone. And this guy, of all the people that I've had the opportunity, or Michelle and I've had the opportunity to talk to, has probably got the strangest trajectory that I've ever heard. And so, you've heard a lot of the things that he gets accolades for. But there's also a lot of stuff that uh, I think you need to know how he got on that trajectory. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, his background, where he comes from, how he got to Central, his passion for Central that continues today. 
and then uh, talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you're really famous for. <laughs> so, Sam, let's get started. Um, we're going to talk about growing up here in Omaha. I'd like to know the neighborhoods, the schools you went to, a little bit about your influences, and how the heck did you end up at Central? Mm. Uh, I grew up on Fontenelle Boulevard. Uh, I grew up uh, like a couple blocks from Holy Name Church. I went to Clifton Hill for uh, elementary school. I don't think that's a school anymore. I went to Martin Luther King for fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, and then at Monroe, and then Martin Luther King again for ninth grade, and then I came to Central. I think at the time you could choose sort of, we could go to your homeschool. I was close to Benson. But I wanted to go to Central. I always wanted to go to Central. My dad really loved Central. He did not go to Central. He's from Columbus, Nebraska. But he had to come here to take uh, come to Central to take the SATs, and it made a huge impression on him. This huge uh, fortress on a hill, and he just really fell in love, and um, and he he really loved Central. And when I was this is a story I told a couple years ago, but when I was um, probably 13 or so, he took the family, my father. Uh, to see the roadshow, and the roadshow really made it, uh, an impact on me. It was like a real, it, it made me want to not just go to Central, but be in the roadshow. It, like <laughs> it was like the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Um, I'll tell you the sketch that I saw on the roadshow that really made me want to be here. Um, it was like an interstitial sketch. There were like four different chapters of this sketch that happened throughout the whole roadshow. So the first one is like a couple of girls are sitting like at a bus stop and this creepy dude in a trench coat comes out and with his back to the audience he flashes the girls and the girls jump up and they shriek in horror and then they run away. That was chapter one. The next one is the splasher see, comes to, like there's a bunch of teachers standing around, clearly teachers, grown people smoking cigarettes, so they're obviously teachers. <laughs> and, um, back in the day. <laughs> in the day and the flasher again with his back to the audience he opens his trench coat and the teachers are disgusted that's gross and they walk off you know with their zigs and then the last chapter or the almost the last chapter is uh, you know a bunch of jocks who are sort of working out and uh, the flasher comes and flashes them and uh, the, the athletes you know they're indignant and they chase him off the stage and then for the final beat of this four-part sketch um, he comes out on the stage, this flasher, he doesn't see anybody, he, to, to any victims, and then he sees us sitting there in the audience, and I felt like we locked eyes for a minute, he looks right at me, and I know it's coming, he's going to flash me, and what is it going to be, and he flashes me, and underneath his trench coat is a huge sign that says, Go Benson. And, uh, <laughs> to me, that was like the funniest thing I'd ever seen, I about fell out of my chair, and I just had to go to Central. So, um, I want to I I real quickly get back to your dad and your mom. You kind of had a unique background there, too. Obviously, your dad had some huge influence. He saw the Monument of Stone, did his ACT. He drags you to the road show. I'm here. But your childhood was kind of different in some ways. Um, yeah, maybe some ways. I mean, my parents both worked a lot. My dad is Bar Johnson. He was a state senator here. He was a, a lawyer, so he was really busy. Uh, my mother, Loretta, was um, getting her PhD at Creighton for a lot of the time, but then she taught in Kearney for, for part of my high school. So um, dad was 
in Lincoln, mom was in Kearney, and I was here in Omaha having the time of my life and doing everything <laughs> without my parents around. It this may play a role in a lot of the trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, it was great. I, I grew up in a house with a strong sense of uh, kind of social justice and um, uh, do-gooderism, which didn't really stick to me, but to my kids, sure, that's all, that's a past a generation. But um, uh, yeah, I had a great uh, a childhood. I, I, I can't complain. And I, yeah, so for what it's worth, I think my parents' absence definitely helped me want to stay after school and do a lot of dumb stuff. So, so you come along, you don't really know anybody at Central. Right. Your pathway should have been to Benson, coming out of Monroe. But yet you hook on to some wingmen, or you become a wingman for some of these guys. Who were some of the young people that were influential as you were making your transition into Central? Um, well, I think uh, probably around eighth or ninth grade, I was I tried out for a play at Junior Theater, um, Nancy Duncan's Junior Theater, and uh, I got in and I loved it. And I, I met my like my best friend there, Scott Barker. Who um, you know was a big theater dude, and, and uh, but also basically the, the Tom Sawyer of my life. He was just a guy who just liked to get into stuff and do stuff, and we just had a blast. So when I got to Central, he he was already he knew everybody. He was coming from Lewis and Clark and knew a lot of kids, and so he introduced me to all his friends, and because um, I'd gone to. Um, Martin Luther King right before, and there were a bunch of kids from Martin Luther King who went to Central, uh, but not a, not a lot, only only a handful at the time. So, um, but but through Scott, I met all my friends, and through Scott, I had like all of my greatest adventures. I was I really was just like a guy who said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do that," and, um, and that's how we got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> so, Miss Reverend Barker. Yes, Bishop Barker. Bishop Barker. Uh, and you all of a sudden go on an adventure. Now, one of the things that I learned about him is very entrepreneurial. This entrepreneurial theme of Central in the 80s kind of blew me away. And one of the things that we talked about is Reverend Barker was always looking to make a dollar. Yeah. Am I close? I think still is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Michelle referenced a sophomoric humor book, which I know we got a couple of accomplices in the audience as well. We have one. We have one yeah. that we're going to out today. Big Is that time. right? Okay. Absolutely. That you got into trouble. You had the opportunity to do a reading session for Doc Moeller. Yeah, that was bad. Okay. So talk to me about this sophomore humor book. Uh, okay. So this is a great thing that Scott did. Scott was always looking for ways to make money. Um, I had a paper route, but that was too, like, Scott was not into that. Like, we need to make money without actually working. So um, we went to uh, Jocelyn Castle one time. They're having a big OPS auction. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so I went with him. He had a car. We went to um, the castle. And he saw this thing immediately and said, we have to buy it. It's going to be. It's going to change our lives. It's the coolest thing. It looked filthy and gross to me, but it was a big um, Mimeo machine. It was like one of those things that you just run off um, – Mimeos, um, it's full of ink, and you have to get these weird uh, um, stencils or forms to uh, that you type on, and it's a whole thing. And I was like, okay, well, this seems 
we can afford it, so we'll get it, but I don't understand what's so great about it. And Scott was like, oh, no, we're going to make our own magazine. And uh, that's, that's one thing. But before we even do that, we're going to raise money for it by selling stocks. We're going to make stock certificates, and we're going to print them on this uh, Mimeo machine. Um, and so, like, that's what we did. We made, uh, before we even made the magazine or anything, it was about these stocks. It was about raising money. I didn't really know what the, I didn't know what a stock was or how it worked, but he, had, he only had a vague idea of how it worked. But basically, he made up these stock certificates so our friends could buy them for a buck. And he promised that you would get a 10% return on your investment every year. So in 10 years, in 10 years, your stock, uh, Scam Jark, which was the name of our magazine because it was a combination of our names, um, would pay off. And people bought them. People bought these stocks. I don't know what they were thinking, but they bought them. And it helped because we used that money to buy the stencil, all the supplies that we needed to make the magazine. And then we made this, uh, we made this um, magazine, I guess is what you would call it, or, or zine, a newsletter. It was just very completely rudimentary. We didn't even know what we were going to make it about or what we were going to have in it, but we just knew we were going to make it. So we... Um, yeah, we typed up some short stories. Scott had a real literary bent, so he was, it was like these weird literary stories, I remember, that I didn't understand them. I was more into ripping off, like, Doomsbury or whatever and making cartoons. and Because you mentioned Mad Magazine. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mad Magazine and National Lampoon at the time were very big influences, and so we, we stole as much as we could feel comfortable getting away with and wrote all these articles and stuff. And we put out uh, Scam Jark. And then we got um, Bob Atherton, who's sitting over there, and Stu Magnuson, other classmates. Where you at, Bob? Yep, right there. Okay. Uh, disguised as an upstanding citizen. Um, <laughs> and we put out like a few issues of Scam Jark, and they were generally filthy, I have to admit that, and very. They're just kind of raw, like whatever. It was teenage id at Unleashed in print form. And of course, eventually we did get caught and, and sent to Dr. Mueller's office, the four of us, Scott Barker, me, Bob, and Stu. And you know, we were very uncomfortable because we were going to college, we were seniors, we were, and it, was, it just felt like this is kind of not cool to be here, we're in trouble, and could this have an effect on our future? And Dr. Mueller, very stone-faced, opened a page, and started reading from the thing back to us. And it was the most humiliating moment I've ever had. And I knew, though, that if I looked at Bob or Scott or Stu, I would start laughing hysterically. But I, and I, so I just stared down at the desk and nodded. And eventually he, Dr. Moeller, said, well, I, you know, I can't stop you from publishing this. And he, whatever, left off the last word, what this is. And he, but he said, I, you can't sell it on school ground, so you have to stop. So we did. We were terrified. I was, anyway. And so we stopped. And, um, but then Dr. Moeller, God bless him, like, I went to college after that. And he wrote me a few letters and was, he never mentioned Scamjark specifically, but he was very supportive of our <laughs> creative urges. So I, I respect and appreciate Dr. Moeller for that. So there is the story. <laughs> so now, while you're at Central, talk to me about your activities. Talk to me about your teachers. Talk to me about the courses. What did you learn? 
and uh, that, that allowed you to go to your next step, which would have been Yale. Because we know Doc Moeller wrote you some letters that were supportive, but I know it took some other people to help you. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I had a great time at, at Central. I loved it from the second I stepped in. I was just really gung-ho. I think, like if I had a time machine and saw my, and went back and to see my, I would be a little, I would cringe a little bit. I was so into Central, but I, I didn't care. I wanted to do it all. And I had great uh, teachers, Peggy right over here, of course, you know. Um, <laughs> she taught me everything I know about theater, which I have to say is not a lot, but <laughs> I learned it all from Peggy. Um, that's I'm giving her a got Dan Daly over here, too. Dan Daly right over there. Dan Daly, the great Dan Daly's here? Unbelievable. Dan I haven't Daly said hi. Dan there. taught me everything about um, a bunch of books. What did we read in your class, Dan? We read some. The we, Iliad. The Iliad was. Canterbury was, Tales. Yes. Canterbury Tales, uh, Iliad. I could, Macbeth, Hamlet. Yeah. No, All good well. foundational stuff for Beavis yes. and Butthead, right? <laughs> well, I can, I can recite the beginning of Wanda Damper with the shorter suit. I can recite the first line of Canterbury Tales, Dan Daly. Marlene Bernstein was a terrific teacher, made us feel like adults. We were juniors. It was a juniors honors English class, and she was very. It was a, a pretty democratic classroom where we were encouraged to actually have conversations, and so uh, I mean I appreciated that. But I mean, really, what I loved and excelled at, I think, more than school itself, was just like the extracurriculars. I mean, obviously, I loved theater, and I loved roadshow, and um, that was just a big part of my my life at, at Central. I had it. There was one moment when I thought I might run cross country. And when I realized it would conflict with the fall musical, I couldn't do that. So, um, yeah, that was that was my thing. He invented uh, after he had played Bernard from something that I got him involved in, and he started writing his sketches for the next two years that he was there. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, one thing that Peggy did um, was uh, she knew I was trying out for the road show, and she always had a few little pets. Um, pieces that she thought might be good. This is this would be a funny sketch for this, for the road show, because she liked to put a lot of comedy in. And so this was a sketch uh, by Jules Pfeiffer, uh, Bernard, kind of a monologue, and it's just about kind of a loser, dorky dude, and and I did it. <laughs> um, typecasting, maybe, but I, I did it, and, uh, and, it was, and it was fine, but we had like a 50s day at school, and everybody dressed as like their favorite Happy Days character, and I dressed as like a nerd, and I did Bernard as a nerdy dude, and it was really, it made a big difference, and it was, it was very fun, and, and funny people liked it, but then after that, there weren't so many of these already written monologues, so, you know, disregarding any copyright laws, I just wrote, again, stealing heavily, wrote my own versions for a couple of years, which I liked a lot too, which also, yeah, of course, that was an influence as well. <laughs> So we get through Central. You're sad to leave. You're a senior. Yeah. You didn't get kicked out, right? No. You were a little worried. You and Scott both were accepted to Yale? We both went, yeah. You both went at the same time. Yes. And so here are these two Midwestern, one very entrepreneurial. By the way, did he ever repay the stockholders? 
<laughs> he might have done one payment. We might have done, you know, presented you. Here's your diamond, good sir. But um, I, have a feeling, I have a feeling he did not. <laughs> and so the ditto machine, what happened to that? But listen, that's the, if you're an investor, that's the risk you take. Sometimes these businesses don't work out. I'm sorry. It's a gamble. And, what was the know, name of that book again? Scam? Scam Jark. Uh, okay. Scam Jark. It was Scott, Sam, Johnson, Barker. It was dumb. But Scam Jark, that was what it was. People remembered it. So, so you two get on the train yeah. or the plane. No, there were three kids who went to Yale from Nebraska that year. Scott and me and a kid, uh, Tom Burnett from Norfolk, who was actually really smart. Scott and I were just like, our dads went to Yale. We were like dummies who like, had did a ton of extracurriculars and were pretty good students. But this guy from Norfolk was like, the real deal, but we, we we all got in Scott uh, Barker's family station wagon, loaded it up, and drove to. I'd never been to the East Coast. Drove to New York first, met Scott's grandfather, stayed at the Yale Club, saw the Pirates of Penzance, drove up to New Haven the next day, and there we were. And it was it was great. The transition was amazing. Like coming from a big city school is you can do anything. Like it, especially Central, where you're with kids from every kind of background and all walks of life. Um, like these these guys from their fancy East Coast boarding schools had, not, well, they were very smart. Uh, and they were very good at school. <laughs> but uh, socially, we were we killed them. So uh, <laughs> were you selling stock? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, but, yeah, it was good. Yale was very fun. So talk to me. So you get to Yale. And I know you and Scott kind of go in different directions. Is that correct? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we were all uh, tight and uh, saw each other a lot. But, um, he, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger place than Central, and you have roommates, and you're, you just kind of go into different, uh, find your different interests. Um, I had a roommate who was also had kind of like writing ambitions, and we were both fans of National Lampoon, and we ended up doing a lot of writing. Uh, I mean, I, he's my writing partner to this day. We still write together, but we wrote a lot at, at Yale together, kind of an, our own, a different kind of underground scene that we put out in our little kind of dorm, our residential college. Um, and Scott was doing a lot of other stuff, and he, had a, he was in a singing group that traveled a lot during the weekends, and um, he had a girlfriend at Vassar, and so he was over there a lot, and yeah, so we, I didn't see him as much at the high school, but we were always aware of what, what we were doing. So you guys are beginning to write, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you graduate from Yale, and it's time to move on. And you then, I believe, went to New York. Is that correct? I went to New York. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I worked as a moving man for a year, and like I worked at a book publishing company doing publicity. I was not very good at either of those jobs. I continued to write with my roommate. My roommate from Yale went to Palo Alto. Was thinking about going to Stanford for graduate school. He had been a religious studies major. Was thinking about going to history graduate school. But we continued to write together and. He decided to come to New York, and we would dedicate ourselves for a year just for writing for magazines. Like that was kind of there were magazines at the time. They they and and they would a lot of them would publish fiction. They would publish short humor pieces, and that's kind of what we wanted to do. We wanted to be the next Ian Fraser that the New Yorker, which didn't pan out, but we did um, we did write for for magazines. He came back, and we spent a year in New York, both as um, temps, being secretaries here and there, been using the free word processing stuff at these jobs and writing our pieces that we sold. We did sell one piece to the New Yorker, and then we ended up um, 
selling a couple pieces to National Lampoon that then and then they hired us to be their um, to, to, to be editors at National Lampoon. So so you become the lead editor at National Lampoon. Yeah, is that right. Like a, this is amazing because if you're familiar, how many in here know what National Lampoon? Yeah. Right. Okay. Wow. He's got this, this may be its greatest claim to fame. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it was kind of on its way. It was sort of ending. Uh, the National Lampoon had its glory days had happened about five or ten years before us, um, but we still clung to the myth of this magazine that it that had been so great. It had also been responsible for like Animal House and other great movies. Um, and so it was exciting for us to work there and to and, and to be there to be like in, you know, there there was a uh, just this walking through the storeroom where you could see all these great old episodes or these great old issues rather. Um, it was it was terrific, and we got in touch with a lot of young writers who have gone on to have great careers, mostly in television. But um, it was really fun. It was it felt like we were doing something exciting, even though the magazine was not very successful. It was at that time. I think it was it was being kept afloat because mostly inmates, prisoners, were able to uh, subscribe to it because they couldn't subscribe to Playboy. They couldn't actually have porn in prison. But National Lampoon did publish topless pictures, and that was allowed to. So we had a lot of uh, inmates who were on our subscribers list. And so you put National Lampoon down. Yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Put the put the knife right in the tart. Because we said, like, uh, you know what? We're not going to do this crass, these topless pictures. We're not going to do. We're going to be fun. This is going to be a comedy magazine. We're going to go back to the roots, and it's going to be pure humor comedy. Nobody wanted that. They wanted the topless pictures. So yes, we killed that magazine. So for the National Lampoon people, he's the guy that killed it. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Good enough. Um, so after National Lampoon. Remind me, did we go to California? Uh, not quite yet. Well, I worked, uh, my partner and I, uh, some guys who we knew from the National Lampoon had started working at, um, at the Comedy Channel, this new oh, comedy. Right. There were like a couple of new cable channels, Ha TV, Comedy Channel. And so we got jobs working at, for a talk show at the Comedy Channel. Um, and we did that for like a year, two years. We worked at Comedy Channel and we were just writing every day. That was actually a great training ground for us because it was a talk show. It was on every single night, five nights a week, and you just had to grind out. And it was only a handful of writers, so just grinding out comedy bits and funny monologue jokes. Uh, we thought they were funny, um, and doing it every single day. And so that was like, um, it was great training for us. Um, but we were trying, but there were kind of limited options uh, in that world, and we wanted. You know, we were ambitious. We wanted to be on either Letterman or Saturday Night Live. Um, and so we put together a pretty good package to send to David Letterman um, of just material, jokes, top 10 lists, whatever. And their head writer, the head writer got back to us and said, listen, I can't hire you both. We like your package, but I'm going to forward it. These guys at, at MTV keep asking for um, writers, so I'm going to send your stuff to them. And it was... MTV was doing a show called Liquid Television. It was a bunch of little short animated pieces, and they were going to take one of these animated pieces and turn it into its own series, and that was Beavis and Butthead, and so we got hired to work at Beavis and Butthead. So, and because of our, of our magazine experience, they also said, you, you're going to write the tie-in book for this, for Beavis and Butthead. So like in the course of two months, 
we wrote a book for Beavis and Butthead that came out a few months later. It was like a really fast crash book, and we were on the New York Times bestseller list. It's like our, our parents, it was like win-win. Our parents thought we were doing something good because we were on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> and our peers thought we were doing something good because we were writing Beavis and Butthead. So, and Beavis and Butthead, I have to say, like when I first saw that one, it's like, I went to high school with these guys. I know these guys. They lived down the street from me. They drove me to school every day. I know these guys. So it was, it was a joy to share my Omaha experience with the, the world at large. So you go Beavis and Butthead. You have some success. Now, one of the things I had to get my head around is that you're a writer for these. Yeah. And that you write for multiple types of stories, or you're always competing four scripts, is that correct? Yeah, kind of. I mean, every show is different. Beavis and Butthead, because they're really short episodes, they're like 15 minutes, and in each one there's a big break for videos, and the two characters would talk about the videos. So they're very short scripts, but you could... Um, you, but yeah, you weren't the only Beavis and Butthead. There are a right? handful of others. And we would okay. send like a list of ideas. Here's, our, here's a bunch of ideas. Which ones do you like? Mike Judge would say, well, I think this one's good. Why don't you do this or that one? I was telling Michelle earlier that the... the one that I feel like we achieved Zen perfection, Beavis and Butthead, because we had one script uh, kind of late in the run where all they do is they find an unopened can of soda, a pop, sorry, uh, unopened pop. can of pop, and all, and they just, the whole episode is them shaking this can of pop to open it. So it's like, that's all you're watching. They, they get in a tire, they roll down a hill, they do, like, it's like a million different things happen, and they're just trying to shake up this can of pop. And then at the end they do, and it kind of fizzles out. And that was like that was the whole episode. And I felt like this is like there's no dialogue. It's just pure action. It's just a thing that happens, and and that's it. So that was my favorite one. <laughs> so we do this for two years. Did that for two years, and right at the end they were MTV was really trying like on the success of Beavis and Butthead. They wanted to do more animation. They tried a bunch of different things. Nothing really seemed to stick. So they said, well, will you write a spinoff of Beavis and Butthead about this? female character, Daria, so very classic TV at the time. That, Let's have these two dudes uh, write about this girl um, and, and, and their world. So uh, we did. We wrote the pilot for the show Daria, which was not as successful as Beavis and Butthead, but did make an impact on a lot of uh, women, I know, uh, comedy writers who felt like that really told their story. And that also was very much, you know, there's a lot of central high in that character. I was looking at a yearbook I have it. I brought it because I thought I might read this, but I'm not going to. Um, I was looking at a yearbook, and when I uh, was a junior, uh, going to be a senior, and I'd been uh, elected to be the editor of the paper, or Mr. Garrity had said I could do that. Uh, you know, about the same week, we had we got our yearbooks and we passed them around to be signed and everything. And a woman, a girl, um, Ann Gatzikowski, had also run for editor of the yearbook, and she didn't get it, but she was also leaving Central and going to go to West Side, But she, she wrote in her yearbook, in my yearbook, um, Dear Sam, you scum. I am, I, uh, you know, I'm sorry not to be around. I won't be around to see you uh, edit the newspaper, but uh, I'm, I'm very happy for you. I guess I'll just go over and, and work on the Lance. Uh, best of luck to you, you fucking asshole. <laughs> I thought, like, that is such a, I, I don't know, something that, that I, I love that inscription very much, and um, there's very much a Daria vibe to that. Uh, that just kind of, like, uh, 
a quiet, burning hatred of um, whatever. <laughs> yeah, so, so um, uh, yeah, Dario had a lot of central, had a lot of, um, of that kind of attitude. So I, was, I like that. But around that time, right after that, or right when we wrote that pilot, we, uh, my partner and I went to California to work on um, news radio. So, and, and we wrote a spec script for news radio. Or we got an agent after Beavis and Butthead, and the agent said, you gotta write for this show. Write a spec script, and maybe they'll hire you. It's on NBC, watch it. So what's a spec script? So it's like a, it's a spec script is, you like if you like a show, whatever your, the show is that you're a fan of or not, like if you like The Simpsons, uh, write an original Simpsons script, just to show the producers, show the head writers that you know the characters, and you know the show, you know what it is. Okay. Um, so uh, we wrote, we watched this show, News Radio, we wrote, a, spent a lot of time thinking about it, talking about it, wrote a spec script, sent it out, flew out to California, got a meeting with the head writer, Paul Sims, who was about our age, and the first thing he said is, well, I haven't read your script. Uh, <laughs> I heard it's good. I really like uh, Beavis and Butthead. Tell me some stories from that. So we did, and he said, I don't know really how to do these interviews with people. I don't know how to hire people very well. I'm kind of new on this, so I'm just gonna ask you questions from the Star Wars quiz, and if you do all right, then I'll hire you. <laughs> uh, my partner, Chris, had not watched any Star Wars. Like, was the one person in the, in the world who didn't really care about Star Wars. And I did my best, but I know I struggled because there were other guys there, slightly younger, who worshipped Star Wars, and I could just see them rolling their eyes when I would say, yeah, I think that's Chewbacca or whatever. And, um, but he hired us anyway, and we worked at News Radio, and it was, it was great. And I work for him now. I work on a different show called What We Do in the Shadows, um, which you should all watch. It comes out on April 15th, the second season. But he's, he, he works there as well. So you hit that. How long were you on News Radio? Uh, news radio until the end, so whatever that was, like three or four years, I think, we were there. We weren't there for the first season, but he hired us after that. Um, yeah, so for like three or four years at news radio, and then, like, that was a, a glory time for multi-camera sitcoms, and we managed to get a job working at Frasier after that. Um, really kind of lucked into it. That was a show I had not watched at all, and um, just kind of fumbled through that interview and said whatever uh, big words that I could think of and, um, and they hired us. My partner had watched, was better prepared and um, so, but I think they were looking to, it had already been on for like five years or something, so they were really looking to, 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 to I don't know, make it funny, to, funnier I guess. Um, they wanted more comedy guys, so I think coming from uh, news radio had helped us in that regard. So yeah, then we worked at Fraser for like five years, six years. So you get Fraser, and then you're off to Fraser after Fraser worked at uh, How I Met Your Mother. And that was the first season of How I Met Your Mother, which was fun. And but that was like the first time we were the oldest guys in a in a in a room, and that really stunk. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was not very fun. Um, but because you're how older by by this time? I was like I wasn't even super old, but I was probably. A, Pushing 40, I guess. So around 40, and these guys were talking about, oh, you know what? We should do an episode. About, we should do something about the Goonies. You remember that movie Goonies? And we're and my partner and I are like, yeah, that's hilarious. Goonies. Rushing home. We gotta watch Goonies. <laughs> uh, so like, uh, yeah. So I mean, uh, but it was good. Like we worked on that show with a lot of cool people. 
um, including um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who now make all like the Lego movies and uh, and like uh, Spider-Man into the into the Spider Verse, whatever it is. Um, but they're but met a lot of great people doing that job. Um, we worked on a we worked on a show after that with John Stamos that I don't think anybody saw um, called like. Um, Jake in Progress. That was the name. Jake in Progress. It was terrible. That was a terrible name for a show and a terrible show. <laughs> and it, it was offered two seasons, but we only worked for for one, and then we got out of it. And we worked on some other. We worked on some bad shows too. So don't. It's not all glory. A lot of it is. But, but then you get into Hot in Cleveland. Yeah. So we bounced around a couple of different shows, and then we went to a pilot taping. Of, you got to meet Betty White. Man, I, I've sat this close to Betty White. <laughs> yeah, Betty White. I'm so jealous of you. Yeah, uh, and she's amazing. Yeah, we worked uh, um, hot in Cleveland from the very beginning, and at first it was kind of like, oh well, is this going to be kind of a corny, um, dumb show? It's the whole premise is these three actors who we liked, um, but they're like uh, in their fifties, moving to Cleveland because they feel like in Cleveland, all, you know. Everybody of a certain age gets passed over in Los Angeles. It's full of beautiful people, and if you hit a certain, if you hit midlife, and uh, you know you're you're kind of washed up. But in Cleveland, well, standards are a little different. And you're beautiful again. So that was the whole premise of the show. These three women move to Cleveland, and they move into a house that's owned by Betty White. And Betty White, I think, was just going to do one episode, um, but she was had been on like a. Snickers commercial. She'd been on Saturday Night Live, and suddenly everybody was talking about Betty White. So they were like, locked her down. Let's, we got to have Betty White on the show all the time, and it was great. I mean, she was hilarious. She uh, basically her career. Like we were talking about this last night. Her career started with the invention of television. I mean, she has really been from. She started in radio, was going to um, Beverly Hills High, and was doing some radio show. And they said, well, we're going to try this thing um, called television. And would you mind just doing basically what you do on the radio, do it on television? And she did. And she was very popular, very winning. And she's just been working in television ever since. So, But she was great. She was very sharp. I mean, she was only in her early 80s at the time. So very, uh, but really just a delight every night. And we've learned that like sometimes she would forget a word or something in larger speeches, so we'd give her short lines and give her punch lines and she would nail it every time. So um, she was great and they were all great. That was, a, that was a really fun, I don't think a lot of people saw that show, but it was a really fun show to work on. Okay, all right, over there. These three people What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. So um, a lot of success. Yes, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. More than you could have ever imagined. Absolutely more than I could have imagined. Coming to Central High School for the first time. That's right. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about where you see the future. Now, you mentioned a show you're working on right now. Yeah. And any other things that might be in play, and then you know I'm going to come after what you promised you would give me. I hope you did <laughs> I not give to Michelle I, already. Well, all right, we'll talk about it. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, the future for me is, uh, yes, I'm working on the show now. Well, it's crazy. I'm working on the show called What We Do in the Shadows, a vampire show, very funny, I think. Um, I'm supposed to go back to work on that in like a week or two, but this coronavirus, we might all be working from home. So, like, that changes the way we will work. I mean, every show. What happens if a vampire gets coronavirus? That's, yeah, that's terrible, I, I would imagine. 
that's bad. Self-quarantine. There we go. Yeah. Um, but a writer's room on this show is like a conference room, and there are like eight to 12 people sitting around just talking about the funniest things you can think of, like whatever bad dates you've been on, any kind of miserable experience or funny idea for these characters. And it's just a lot of laughing all day. It's your, the funniest people, the smartest people you know sitting around laughing. And so to not be able to do that, to have to look at a computer screen, you hard. know, will make it different, uh, make it a little difficult, I think. So we'll we'll see we'll see how that goes. But um, I mean, I'm at the point now where I'm I feel lucky to have a job. Nobody wants to really hear the jokes of a 56 year old white man. I have to say, <laughs> and I don't blame people. Like, haven't we been on TV long enough? Maybe so. Uh, so. Um, I'm just I'm grateful to to still be working. Uh, my wife works on a show called she runs a show called Grownish, which is all about um, college kids, and so she's just she feels even more desperate in some ways than I do, uh, just because like everything changes so fast and it's all you know fluid and and everything is moves really quickly and you just have to be kind of on top of things. Um, you know, reading, watching, to, to really be able to stay current with television, with comedy, with whatever, um, you know, is, is out there. But I feel like, okay, well, I'd be happy to end my career on this show if that's what happens, because it's, uh, you know, people really like it. It's made some, some best of lists and stuff, so I'm, I'm happy with that. But I, I, I mean, I love what I do. I love going out to a stage. It's the same thrill I would get going down to uh, backstage at Central, um, and waiting for, to to go on. The lights come come on. The curtain goes up, and it's showtime. And you really just and it's and you're making people laugh. And I, I, I love that as much now as I did then. So before I ask for the best story, yeah, you made a comment to me in regards to your relationship with Central as a 56 year old white male, as you put it. <laughs> yeah, and I was kind of in awe because I, I did not expect for you to say what you said. Uh-oh, I can't remember. But, yes, go on, but go we on. were talking about all the communities that you had been in. Yeah. And that, that, that Central was so important. Oh, yeah. Well, Central still is important. I mean, you may have to prompt me about what, what it was specifically. But I will say that, yeah, coming from this, I just felt like this was a melting pot school. And I love that about it almost more than anything. Um, Best friends are here. Best friends, best experience. I mean, I'm still, like, I went to the Atherton's house last night for, for uh, dinner that Bob actually made. Shocking. So um, <laughs> it was very delicious. I love being with them. I still stay in touch with a lot of my friends from Central. We don't cross paths that often, but I, you know, it was, it was a powerful experience. I mean, high school in general is a powerful experience. You're really becoming your true self in many ways. Um, your your passions are so intense. You find the things that you are just in love with and the people that you're in love with. And it's just really powerful. Like looking at the things that people wrote to me in my, in my yearbook. I mean, yes, there are the banal, have a great summer and you're the coolest or whatever. A lot of you're the coolest, don't worry about it. But, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, Molly, I know you wrote that one. And, um, uh, but, but also just people are just like, so their hearts are full and they're just so uh, enthusiastic. And like if I could, um, that's just like a great 
quality in a human being is enthusiasm. And I met so many people at Central who are just enthusiastic, who loved what they were doing, whether it was you know, a band or even like the, the nerds who did the problem solving team or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they loved, they loved it. And I, I just, I'm a fan of that and will always be. But I did, I really did love like this school really at the crossroads of the, of the world. I mean, people from all over were coming to, to Central. All right, it's time. I think I'm close to time, is that right? Got ten minutes. All right, okay. I'll talk really slowly. Okay. <laughs> we'll see how well you do. Yeah, I don't know. So your best story of all the experiences that you had at Central, ops, minus Doc Moeller reading you. And I heard it, Bob, you were the illustrator, is that right? Bob did a cartoon, yeah. Doc, Bob was really funny. He, had, he actually was a real cartoonist who could draw. So he was. He but was I heard funny. that it wasn't really all that appropriate. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, well, I have to. I, I, Ten minutes. I have time for two stories. I'm going to tell two stories. I told one to Michelle today. I'm going to tell that one again, which, okay. I thought, which was really great because this really was about my time at Central. So one thing that Scott, I mean, again, this was all about making money. And so Scott the entrepreneur and uh, this other kid, Jay Sturrock, who we went to school with, Jay, Scott, and I, we'd read about this game that people played, had played at a different high school. We picked up on it. And it just sounded like a really cool thing to do and, of course, a money-making opportunity. So we decided we'd put a version of it on at Central ourselves. It was called called it chaos, K-A-O-S, killing as organized sport. Uh, so maybe not so great, but that was the name of it. And basically, all these kids, we would get as many kids as we could to, to kick in five bucks. Everybody kicks in five dollars. You go and get a toy gun with rubber tip darts on it. Uh, we would take everybody's name who kicked in up five bucks, put it in a hat, mix them all up, and then everybody would pick out a different name. So like we have like 100 kids playing this game. Everybody's got the name of somebody. They don't, you know, it's a secret. You don't tell who, you're, who you've got. And your job is to kill that person, is to take the dart gun and kill that person. And so you we, had 100 kids running around with dart guns? I, we didn't think it out very carefully. Okay, I'm just, I'm just stopping. I'm just looking at Dr. Bennett going, oh my gosh. It seemed very, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And like five, that's- $500. $500, three ways, are you kidding? Well, the whole thing was like, so- Is this right. a Barker deal? It was a lot of Scott in it, yeah, okay. for sure, for sure. And he- He so, is working with Jesus now, right? He's, he's got a lot to atone for, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yes, we, so that was the game, is you go and you assass you try to assassinate, and there are certain rules that I was, that I don't really remember about, like who, how many people could be around when you do it. You had to do it kind of in secret, but it couldn't be so secret that nobody saw it. Somebody had to see it. Yeah, maybe somebody can remember those rules. But anyway, we did, so we played this game. I was killed immediately. Like, I was out of the game, like, within five minutes. And, um, but I can't, and I can't remember who won the game, but it did, it did come down to two people and finally one person, and they took a cut of that $500. They took some of the money, and then and Scott, Jay, and I split the rest. So, but, so years later, I'm writing television in, in Los Angeles. I thought, like, well, maybe there's a funny, great kind of romantic comedy that takes place during this game where there's a man and a woman playing this game. It's a, we'll, we'll put it in Manhattan. It's a game for grown-ups. It's a, a thousand people or more people who are playing this game. You have to be invited. It's a whole procedure. And you're running around the whole city trying to find the person you are supposed to tag, assass assassinate with your toy gun. And 
and eventually, you know, these two star-crossed lovers will, 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 will meet. And that seemed like a good idea. Nobody bought it. Nobody else thought it was a good idea, so whatever. It's, I've had a lot of those. Um, but I called, I got through Facebook, I got in touch with the, with the girl who had killed me in five minutes. Uh, her name is Liz Fair. She was a couple years behind. She was a sophomore and I was a senior. She's a professor and she, or she, she's, her husband's a professor. They live in Sweden. Uh, but I said, Liz, I sent her a message. Do you remember me? And do you remember this game where, you know, the, the chaos? And because I want to get how you felt and how far you got. I want to hear your experience in that because you killed me so fast. And, and she said, do I remember it? You know, I was a sophomore. I was a new kid in school. I didn't really know anybody. I didn't feel confident. I didn't have a crew. I didn't know. I was just kind of lost. And suddenly, I'm in this game, and it's not really sanctioned by the school. So it feels a little dangerous. It feels a little different. It's weird. I have this, and I kill you right away. I have this. Killing you was the best thing that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> that had to make you feel good. I did feel good. I did feel good. She answered a lot of my questions. She was good. But listen, let me tell you this other story, this other great story. That this is about my dad. This is not about my experience in Central. Because so my this father, is the legislator. The state legislator, yes, exactly. So my father, you know, he went to Central. He had to take his SATs or whatever, to take his college boards, and he loved it. And then he went to college, and he went eventually to law school, but he took a year off between college and law school. And he came to Omaha, and he was working at Mutual of Omaha as a computer programmer. This was 1960, so I don't know what the hell that was, but he was a computer programmer in 1960 at Mutual of Omaha, so like, you know, punch cards or something. But he was living with like two, three, two or three other guys. Uh, two or three other guys in this house share, they were doing different things, like uh, one I think was an engineer. They, ha they had different jobs. I don't even know how they got in touch with each other, but they had a house share. They had no money. They were just working these entry-level type jobs. But my father had, uh, somehow in his life, he has a lot of these <coughs> strange affectations, but he had kind of gotten into Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> so in 1960, he sees in the paper that Central High is putting on the Mikado, this great Gilbert and Sullivan operetta. And so he goes to, to, to uh, see the Mikado, and he brings these three um, housemates of his to go see the 1960 production of the Mikado at Central High School. And he loves it, of course. It's great. It's terrific. As it happens, Peggy was in uh, one of the uh, three little mates from school. Catashaw. Okay, it's the pictures that got small. Uh, uh, the so yeah, so Peggy was in um, was in the Mikado. I didn't know that until many years later, of course. But so my father takes his his friends, these two these three guys who I don't even think were from Omaha, but were from out of state somewhere. And they were all underage, right? Well, they were all um, yeah, okay. sure. For the purposes of the story, yes, they were. Uh, but but one of the guys. It just was like really into it. He just loved that play, uh, that, that operetta. And he um, developed a real passion for Gilbert and, and Sullivan because of seeing it at, at Central High. And he ended up collecting records. He ended up traveling to see different productions. Uh, I think he was, I think he was a, a, an engineer. 
but because of that show, he just became a lifelong fan. He eclipsed my father, who, who really liked Gilbert and Sullivan quite a bit, but this guy was, was so into it. And he, he died uh, this past summer, and so probably about my dad's age. My dad turns 81. Um, but he passed away this past summer. My father wrote a nice letter to his wife talk, telling him all the things that he remembered about him and how great it was. And the wife said, well, you know, Vard, um, he, he uh, certainly remembered those, that, that time. You lived together very fondly, and you should know that at his funeral, we played the overture to the Mikado because... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so he, you know, made a difference in his uh, life. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Jackson. Stand up and take a bow. My friend, it's been a pleasure. I think this passing period, are we close? Yep. Right at 1 o'clock? Yep. Outstanding. 10 minutes, All right, dude. thank you. All right, you are all dismissed.